The kids are dismissed for Sunday school. Uh, follow, it's like Parker and whoever else is back there. Well, welcome again to uh, Cornerstone Church. It's a joy to uh, to be with you all this morning. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Matt Mama. I get uh, the great privilege of being one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Uh, Pastor Eric is... Uh, has been on and still on a sabbatical since the end of June, and he will, Lord willing, be back in the pulpit uh, next Sunday. And uh, looking forward to having him back, and um, trust that he had a, was having a refreshing time uh, away with his family. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 32 for um, just our time in studying the Word of God this morning, Psalm chapter 32. And as you're turning there, just let me tell you just a brief story that I recently uh, had heard. There was a young man at, at uh, Christian College, and uh, <clears throat> he was talking, as young men do on occasion, talking to some of his friends in the college dorm about what they're going to do over the weekend. Going biking or hiking or going fishing or doing whatever they were doing, trying to one-up each other. Hey, I'm doing this. Well, I'm doing this. I'm doing more than you and whatever. One of the friends started talking about all of the things he was actually going to be doing with his girlfriend instead of some of these other things. And not just hanging out together, but doing things that only married couples should be doing. That stopped the conversation. And the guys just kind of wandered into their own rooms. Well, this, this young man was just disturbed by what he heard and went and to confront this other, this other gentleman and started to talk to him about how, how, how the things that you're planning to do and the things that seems like you're doing with your girlfriend are, are sinful. Like that's an affront against God. That's against his law. That's not how we are to be living as believers and Aren't you concerned about that? And the guy just said, hey man, let's don't, don't worry about that. Like, it's okay, we just confess our sin later and God forgives us, so we're all good. We just repeat 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and he'll forgive us. Well, we hear that and hopefully we would think that's dumb. That's, that's wrong. That's foolish. We, we, that's not genuine confession. That's not repentance. That's not why that verse is there. And if you're like me, maybe you're tempted to think, well, at least I don't do that. But before we maybe become too self-righteous, we need to be asking ourselves, how seriously do we take our own sin? Well, maybe it's not fornication, so it's not as bad. How seriously do we take our own sin in our own lives, the things that people maybe confront us about, the things that we just are aware of. How serious do we take that and do we go to the Lord in confession over our own sin? There's another story of a man who we would consider to be a pretty, pretty godly guy yet sinned in very significant ways against the Lord and against a woman, her husband, and a nation. As Richard was reading the opening reading this morning from 1 Samuel 12, you might think that's kind of a weird opening reading. Well, right before that, we see the sin that brought upon the judgment of God and the, the, the confrontation from the prophet Nathan. 
David had sinned against Bathsheba. He didn't go out to war as he was supposed to, as the kings do. And he stays home. He sees this woman. He takes her and uh, commits adultery with her. She becomes pregnant. David freaks out, uh, then tries to uh, bring Uriah back to, to cover up what he did. That didn't go so well. Then he has Uriah killed. He murders Bathsheba's husband to cover up his sin. He takes her to be another wife, which was also a sin. And then he just stays silent and thinks it's done. Covered up. About a year goes by. A year goes by and the prophet Nathan then comes to David, who had not repented, who had not confessed his sin against God. And so this psalm that is written here, Psalm 32, along with uh, maybe the more familiar Psalm, Psalm 51, is the, the, this is a psalm of David's repentance after Nathan came to him and confronted him and he confessed his sin to the Lord and sought the Lord's forgiveness. David was dealing with consequences of his sin and as, as we'll see, his life was difficult during that time of keeping silent and not repenting and not confessing. As with many of the other psalms, David wrote this psalm. This is from him. Uh, and as, as many of the psalms, they were, there's an occasion, there's something going on in David's life that he's writing out prayers and praise to the Lord that are then turned into songs for the nation of Israel to sing. The Psalms, the book of Psalms, is, was Israel's hymn book. This is what they would sing to the Lord corporately together. And many of the Psalms, including this one, you see there right above verse 1, it says, of David, a maskeel. I think that's how you pronounce that. That is original. That is inspired. That's just not another title. That is the inspired word, part of the inspired word of God. And that, that word, a maskeel, it means instruction. It means to, 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 to instruct somebody, to teach somebody something of great importance. And so David is writing this to instruct the people of Israel and to instruct us about how we are to deal with our sin. Rather than trying to conceal it, we are to confess it. So read, follow along with me as I read Psalm chapter 32. Again, of David, a maskeel. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man in, in whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. Selah. And I acknowledged my sin to you. In my iniquity, I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let every holy one pray to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You guard me from trouble. 
You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will guard, or I will give you insight and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose harness are bit and bridle to control them. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Again, David is giving instructions here about how he found the freedom from guilt and sin and shame through the confession of that sin and finding the full forgiveness of God. And so we're going to see just David's instruction in four different ways through this psalm. David's instructing us in four different ways. And how do we deal with confession? How do we deal with guilt in our lives? So the first is this, found in verse 1 and 2. We just see the blessing of being cleansed from sin. We see the great blessing of being cleansed from sin. Again, verse 1 and 2. How blessed is he whose transgression or sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now blessed is the man whose iniquity against sin Yahweh will not take into account and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This, very, this psalm very, starts out, <clears throat> excuse me, very similar to, maybe you're probably familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus starts out the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Really the idea of those who see themselves as sinners, those who see themselves as a need of Christ and a Christ forgiveness of those are the blessed ones Jesus is talking about. Very similar here, David is saying the same thing. Blessed are those who realize that they are sinners and are confessing their sin and they're forgiven by God as a result of their confession and seeking his forgiveness. The word they're blessed can be translated as happy or joyful or exuberant. And it's, a, it's, it's written also in a way that, in, that it, it intensifies the meaning to really the, to, to mean more abundant or overflowing blessing is the idea. You could translate it, how abundantly, richly blessed is the person whose transgressions are forgiven. And when, when, we, when we understand our transgression, we understand our sin, and then we understand how blessed we are that God has removed that. Again, a transgression is anything that is a willful departing from and a defilement of God's will or God's word for our lives. Every time we sin, every time we disobey, every time we don't perfectly acknowledge and thank God and worship God for who he is, that is sin. That's a transgression against him. No matter how big or how small we may think that sin is, it is a transgression. And that, really the fact that we are sinful the fact that we are sinners makes the forgiveness of God all the more just powerful and we understand the great blessing of what that means. David says, look, your sin is, is, is covered. It is lifted off. It is removed. God takes away your sin. He conceals it with his love. He conceals it with his forgiveness. Even David's sin of adultery and murder, God covers and God cleanses. This idea of covering also has the imagery of, of the Day of Atonement. The day once a year in the, in, in the history of Israel 
when the high priest would come and take blood from the animal that is sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. He would sacrifice the animal. He would take the blood and carry it to the most holy place the Ark of the Covenant is. He would sprinkle that blood on the Ark and the sins of the people then were covered. They were taken away. They were removed. That's what David is speaking of here. Where we have a we have something better than the Ark of the Covenant. We, our blood was covered and removed through the blood of Christ. And I was looking forward to that event. David says, you're blessed. Your sin is covered. You're blessed. Verse 2, again, he continues to say, How blessed is the man in whose iniquity, again, sin, Yahweh or God does not take into account. He doesn't hold a record book in heaven anymore of all of your sins. He's not holding those things against David. He's not holding those things against you if you've confessed your sin, found forgiveness in him. That debt of sin that David owed him, that punishment that he rightly deserved, is removed then. That debt is wiped clean. And he also says, in in whose spirit there is no deceit, the idea of, I'm not rationalizing my sin. I'm not making excuses. I'm not trying to come up with, with blame-shifting ideas of, well, it's not my fault. I sinned because you sinned. I did this because you didn't do this. I had no choice but to sin. It wasn't a big deal. Why are you making such a big deal out of this? Everyone does it. That's the idea of, my, there is deceit there when I'm having those, maybe those, those, those ideas in my heart. Maybe you thought, I was forced into the situation. I had no other option other than to sin. And David's saying, if you're confessing, confessing your sin, there's no deceit there. And we know that from James 1, uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, that each person is, he, he sins, each person sins when he is lured away and enticed by his own lusts by his own desires. Each person sins because of the desires in our hearts and so therefore the confession of our sin we have to realize we can't rationalize our sin. We can't excuse our sin. We can't just say it's not my fault or it's not a big deal. And when we do that, when we have true confession of our sin and we find the forgiveness of God, which we'll talk about more in a minute, then David says and God says you're blessed. You sought the forgiveness of the Lord. Your sins are covered. And maybe you need to be reminded of that today as I often need to be reminded of that. Of the Lord's great blessing of forgiveness. That no matter what you have done, no matter how many times you have sinned, no matter how many times you sinned this morning coming to church trying to get your kids ready, how many times you've sinned this week, you can't out-sin God. To the point where God's no longer going to forgive you. We'll talk about later. That's not an excuse to sin. Right? But that our sins are covered. There's forgiveness and there's cleansing from that sin because of Christ. Right? We have the blessing then. The blessing of a, of, of a clean or a clear conscience before God. We have the blessing that we have a right standing with God now. We have a blessing that we are now united with Christ. We've been given a new heart. We've been given a new spirit. We've been given a new life that is now transforming us from the inside out. Transforming our hearts, our, our, our thoughts, our, our, our desires. 
There's blessing in that. There's a blessing of not constantly having to look over our shoulder wondering who's going to catch me in my sin. There's blessing in that. We don't have to worry about being caught in our sin as we've been forgiven and walking in obedience to the Lord. But yet, if you've not confessed your sin, if you're holding on to something and unwilling to let go of it like David was and excusing it and trying to cover it up yourself, you're concealing it, you're trying to hide it from God or trying to hide it from other people, we see that there's heavy burdens with that. There's guilt and upon guilt being placed upon your conscience as David talks about in verse 3 and 4. So secondly, we see not only the blessing, verse 1 and 2, but we see secondly the sorrow of concealing our sin. That there's sorrow. Part of David's instruction is there's sorrow in the concealment of sin. Verse 3 and 4, and he says this, When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. This idea of the bones being wasted away, obviously it's not literal. His bones weren't literally falling apart as he was alive. Right? But it's the idea of his physical stamina, his strength was just gone. His emotional stability was just gone. He had just no joy in life. Even that idea in verse uh, 4 of his vitality being drained away, just, he, he can just sense the Lord's hand was heavy upon him. The, the thrills and the joys of life were, <clears throat> were just gone. The Lord's disciplined him in some physical way. And although he kept silent about his sin, he didn't keep silent about his sorrow. You notice there, <clears throat> through my groaning all day long. I mean, we understand what groaning is. I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. Oh, this is so hard. Oh, I'm so exhausted or whatever it is. I'm so hungry. If you're like me. All right, you, you, you see those groanings, or it's, it's the idea of crying out or roaring. I just, you're just being so loud about how hard life is. There's a complaining, there's a sign constantly, not about his sin. David's not doing that about his sin. He's, he's sighing and complaining and groaning about the discipline, about the consequences of his sin. Charles Spurgeon says, what a killing thing sin is. It's a pestilent disease. It just drains us away. And when David speaks of the word vitality, it's an interesting word. It, it, meant to, uh, it meant something that is like sweet or juicy to eat. It was used to talk even to refer to cakes in ancient Israel. Things that are just very sweet. And it's really the idea of a delight. The delights of my life, David, are saying are gone. The things I used to eat and find enjoyment in and pleasure in are just gone. The pleasures of life are gone for David. I no longer find enjoyment in these things, my hobbies or whatever. That, that, that sweetness is, David says, is drained. It's drained away. Just as, as, as the heat of summer, the idea of just, uh, I mean, you're just exhausted, you're, you're weary, you can't do anything, all you want to do is just lay down. Right? You're just debilitated, you're just drained 
constantly. Emotionally, David's saying, just emotionally distraught because of his groaning, because of his sin, his soul, his body is aching, racked with pain and agony. He's saying he's depressed and discouraged and downcast and his joy for life is gone. What an encouragement, David. Just kidding, right? We, we, why does David say this? As a warning. We all understand this, though. If we're honest with ourselves, we understand we've, we've seen this. When we have kept silent about our own sin, maybe we've experienced something like this. But if David lived today, and he felt this way, and he went to a doctor, or he went to a, a psychologist, he would probably be diagnosed with, with like depression, some, some anxiety disorder, and say, well, you should just... Um, Maybe take some medication or do this or try to do that to feel better. What, what often the world calls a sickness, the Bible would call it sin. And now I'm not suggesting every time you feel discouraged, every time you're depressed, or every time you're sad, you're sinning. That's not the point here. However, there are many times, even in my own life, where I can feel some sorrow, I can feel some discouragement, I can feel some despair, some depression, and I can just ignore it. We can tend to just ignore it. Maybe we feel hopeless, and we just say, oh, I don't want to deal with that. And oftentimes, it's because of, of unconfessed sin in, in, in our lives. That the Lord's loving discipline is, is sort of coming upon us, and we have that sense of just the vitality again of life drained away, that we just, I don't want to deal with that. I'm sad because of something else, right? Not because of maybe my sin that I'm unwilling to let go of, I'm unwilling to repent of, I'm unwilling to confess. Because we have a conscience that God has given to us, and as we break God's laws, we break God's word and disobey that, God's given us because the conscience sort of smoke alarm of the soul. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. I mean, you have a smoke alarm in, in your kitchen, and every time you, you, know, you, you cook something, it goes off, and you, you hit it with a frying pan or take the battery out or whatever. Okay, maybe in those moments that might work, but what, it's, it's useless now. I don't really hit with a frying pan. It's too high up on the wall, right? But the point of a smoke alarm is to, to, to alert you something isn't right. Something isn't correct here. <clears throat> there, there's something that needs to be addressed and needs to be taken care of. And that's the idea of, of our conscience. That guilt that we have, guilt is not primarily a feeling. Guilt is a matter of fact. We are guilty before the Lord when we sin. Whether or not we feel it doesn't really matter. God's given us those feelings of guilt, that weight of guilt as sort of that smoke alarm of the soul of something isn't right. And the more that we suppress that guilt, the more that we say, I don't care, I'm not going to deal with it, the less we become aware of our sin. And the, the more we're just going to live in it and really suppress that truth. And if ultimately we're thinking, we're not that bad because I don't feel bad anymore. I don't feel guilty anymore, so therefore what I'm doing is fine. And God's given us and made us with the knowledge of him written on our hearts and so that when we sin, we become guilty and oftentimes, though, when we suppress it, that, that's when our lives are sort of drained away. That's when our, our hearts and our souls become burdened with sin. And the Lord's hand, again, can be heavy upon us, again, to wake us up. Maybe if you feel depressed, again, I'm not saying always, but maybe if you have the sense of depression sometimes, it could be 
that's part of the Lord's wake-up call for you. Something isn't right. There's maybe some sin in your life you need to address. The goal is not just to feel happy. The goal is to address what is going on in your heart. We don't want to ignore, drown out those warnings, but we want to take to heart what the Word of God says about them. We want to trust that the Lord's loving discipline is there to show us that again, something isn't right. And there might be some sin in my life that I need to deal with. And you notice there at the end of verse 4, sort of over near the margins, the word selah. That word was, was used um, meaning just pause, contemplate. Dwell on what was just said and don't move it past it too quickly. Think about what was just sung or spoken to you. God wants us to think about and to understand the seriousness of our sin, the consequences of ignoring it. Not moving past it too quickly. Not being like David and, and just ignoring and blame shifting our sin putting it on somebody else and trying to do other things to, 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 to cover it up and to conceal it on our own, in our own way. Again, maybe the, the joys and the delights of life seem lacking to you. Again, the culture would tell you, if that's the case, distract yourself. Feel happy again. Do whatever you can to feel okay, to feel happy, to feel normal. What's normal? It's normal that we struggle. Sorry, I'm going to have a tangent here. Right? They would say, again, distract yourself. Go on a hike. Go work out. Go recreate. Go drink. Drown yourself in, in alcohol. Drown yourself in entertainment. Whatever you want to do to find comfort in, do it. Feel happy. You feel sad? Be happy. You feel depressed? Be happy. Find happiness in whatever way you can. I mean, there's a whole book written about it, the book of Ecclesiastes. And... If you haven't read it, spoiler alert, it doesn't work to find happiness in any way you can. Solomon did, said, I've done everything. I've done more than you can ever imagine. And there's no happiness, there's no joy other than in the Lord. Those are not the ways to deal with our guilty hearts. Recreate, and be entertained, you know, go on a hike, do those things, have fun. God's given us these things to enjoy within reason, but though, that is not the way to feel better and to deal with guilt and shame. David says later on in Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If the word of God is being taught to you and preached, and if right now you feel convicted of something, you're reading something, don't just say, goofy preacher, Goofy person, silly person telling me to, that I'm sinning. How dare they? Don't ignore it. Don't tell, tell, to say to somebody, don't play the Holy Spirit in my life. Uh, because when someone's confronting you and the word of God is being told to you, the Holy Spirit's the one convicting you. Don't ignore that. Confess your sin. Don't put it off. Confess. Find the joy and the freedom that the Lord promises in his forgiveness. The third instruction David gives us in, in, is found there in verse 5. Again, the freedom from confession or the freedom of confessing your sin. 
we find the blessing in verse 1 and 2. We see really the sorrow and really a warning in verse 3 and 4. And then in verse 5, we see the freedom from confessing us in verse 5. Again, as one commentator says, this is really the central point of the, of the psalm, really the climactic point here, because this is where David is really instructive in, in the confession, really telling us how to confess and the fact that the Lord forgives us of our sin. You see there in verse 5, David mentions some three different ways how he confesses. Three different ways of the confession and not covering up anymore because he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And then verse, uh, sorry, the second line, my iniquity I did not cover up and I will confess my transgression to you. There's acknowledgement. There's not covering up and there's confession. The, the, the idea to acknowledge means, again, just to recognize something, to know something, to be aware of something. And really David is saying here, it's, it's an acknowledgement that I've sinned against God. I've sinned against people. I'm a, I, I know that. And I'm, not, I'm no longer trying to say, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know I sinned against you. I didn't realize that. There's an acknowledgement of this is sin. Why well, I, I didn't know that was that, that was against the, the law or against the against God's word. Uh, we can't have those excuses. We can't have those excuses. David says, I acknowledge that. Then he said, I didn't cover it up. I didn't try to cover up my iniquity anymore. Well, you, you might say, well, he did cover it up. He he did temporarily for about a year. And then when he when he was confronted, he no longer is covering it up. He says, I fully acknowledged it. I'm not blame shifting anymore. I'm realizing this sin for what it really is. It's out in the open. That's the idea. It's, it's, it's no longer covered. It's exposed. It's out. It's made aware. Again, no excuses, no downplay, no half-truths. Well, forgive me for, you know, I just kind of mean, and whatever. It's a full exposure of my sin. When we confess to somebody else and to the Lord, we, we need to be clear. Lord, I sinned in these ways against you. Honey, spouse, child, friend, I sinned against you in these ways. Not half-truths or false confessions. We might be able to fool other people and yeah, I sinned and I was bad and you know, I, did, I did some wrong things and I, I'm not perfect. But we can't fool God. He sees through that. He sees through that. He sees into our hearts. Enough times when we think we can fool somebody else, we're not fooling them. They know. We need to confess our sin to them and to people we sin against openly and freely. Don't think, well, if I confess, they're going to think I'm a lesser person. They know you're a sinner. As, as a pastor, as a counselor, people come to me and, uh, you know, uh, don't worry, I'm not going to expose anyone's sin here. Um, uh, but uh, it's, sometimes it's, it's a marvel like, like I don't want to shock you pastor that I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner like, oh, what? I know I know don't worry about it I know I'm a sinner too I'm not better than you I know you're a sinner that's why you're here you didn't come here because you want to tell me how great of a prayer life you had this morning that's not why you're here I, we know that we're sinful don't think, well, if I confess to them, they're going to think, no. If we confess, the Lord will be blessed. Who cares what they think? The Lord will be honored as we do that. 
And the word here for confess in verse 5, David says, I confessed. It means just to say the same thing. To confess means to agree with God about my sin. The word can also be, uh, can also be translated or can, can mean to sing aloud in public praise. Now, David's not saying every time we sin, we need to sing aloud and write a song about our sin like David did here in Psalm 32. We don't need to do that. But it's the idea of, of we're declaring it openly. We're, we're declaring what God has said. We're not hiding what we have done. We're speaking the truth about our sin, aligning, our tr- aligning that with God and confessing that wrong to God and to other people. Again, one other question I often get as a counselor is how do I know if my, gen- if my confession is genuine? How do I know if I've really confessed my sin to God or to others? And while we're not God, we, we can't see in the heart, we can't see if someone's confessions are, are really genuine. We can see the fruit of that, though. We can see the demonstration of that, like with David here. Because as we confess, again, we are agreeing with God. We're not making excuses. I've sinned but you. That's not genuine confession. I am sorry if I hurt you. No, that's not genuine confession. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have sinned, but if you didn't do this, then I wouldn't have. That's not, that's not genuine confession. It's, I'm confessing without excuse, without blame shifting. It's no one's fault but mine. There's a full acknowledgement of, of sin. There's a full acknowledgement of how that hurt you and how that affected you. And a willingness to deal with the consequences as, as we read later on in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and with what happened with David's son and with the nation of Israel. Of confession without complaint against God. Of God, you made my life so hard. I sinned against you, but you were mean to me. You made my life hard. You gave me these trials and I had to sin. That's not true confession. We confess without that complaint. We confess with a broken heart over our sin, not merely broken over the consequences of how hard our life is. We confess with repentance and a turning from our sin and a turning to obedience to the word of God, demonstrating and bearing fruit of that confession. Not that we never sin again in our lives, but that we are striving to be obedient to God's word and no longer hiding in and going back to and living in that sin. That's one way in which we can know our our confessions are real and genuine. If you're still not sure, pray to the Lord that your confessions will be real and genuine. Ask him that they would be real and genuine. Ask him to reveal to you if, if there's still false ways within you. Let's just see in verse 6 in a minute about praying to him in those things, right? But we see then as we acknowledge and we don't cover up, as we confess, then the great benefit later on in verse 5, he says, and then you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Again, to forgive means that the debt is released. The debt of sin is lifted off. Right? The idea of forgiveness, it's a transactional word that refers to a debt that I owe to somebody, when you take out a loan for a house or a student loan or a car or whatever, you owe that bank or that lender, you owe them a debt, you owe them something, and you have to repay that. When you sin against somebody else, you owe them a debt. 
And when you sin against God, you owe him a debt. But with sin, we can't repay it. I can never repay a sin against somebody, or against, especially against God. We see that, we see that parable in Matthew 18, which you can look at later. There's, we can never repay the debt of sin we owe God. Even just one sin filled up our debt against God to condemn us to hell for all of eternity. You would spend a billion lifetimes trying to earn off that debt and then never achieve anything. It would still be zero amount of the debt paid. And so for God, for God to forgive our sin is incredible. It's a gracious miracle that he's done that. But he can't just forgive it willy-nilly and say, okay, I forgive you and wiped clean. No, like if somebody forgives you of a financial debt, somebody has to pay that. Somebody's taking that and absorbing that debt. But if I can't repay that debt and God just forgives me of that, then what happens? How is it forgiven? Christ. Christ takes your debt upon himself. Jesus paid for it on the cross. Jesus being perfectly God and yet perfectly man came to live the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live. He never sinned ever and once in thought, in word, and in deed. Perfectly fulfilling and obeying the law of God that we could never fulfill. We could never live out. And he took that punishment for us on the cross. He endured that pain for us on the cross. He took our guilt upon him on the cross. He died for our sins, rose again to take away that sin and to forgive us of that sin. That's the only way forgiveness can happen to the believer. And so when we go to him and we confess our sin to him, we confess that we are in desperate need of him, we confess that there's no other way to salvation other than through Christ and by faith in him and in him alone, not by works, not by anything we can do, but by faith and trust in Christ and his work on the cross, then God forgives, forgives us of that sin. There is no other way to be made right before God. We confess to him that God, you are the only holy one and there's no other way to get to heaven other than through you. There's no other way for, for me to be made right before God. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For from the heart, a person believes, leading to righteousness. From the mouth, he confesses, leading to salvation. Not, not, not merely saying the words, Jesus is Lord, but it's the idea, again, a confession of acknowledging and owning and saying with the Lord, agreeing with the Lord that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and ruler over everything. The confession that Jesus is Lord is that he is the supreme Lord of my life and I am to follow him and to obey him and to, to align my will with his and to acknowledge that he is the only path, the only means to salvation. Again, David inserts Selah here again, Dwell on that. Don't just meditate on the seriousness of your sin. Do that. But also meditate on and pause and seriously consider the hope of the gospel that is found in the freedom and the forgiveness of Christ.
That if we're saved, we can rejoice and take hope that all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been placed on Christ and dealt with on the cross. Again, this doesn't mean we can keep sinning without consequence or without confession, but that when we sin, we humbly go back to the Lord in prayer, in repentance, asking for forgiveness, and knowing he will graciously forgive us. Well, we've got to move on. Fourth, then. The fourth instruction David gives us is found in verse 6 through 11 of the the need to counsel other people about sin, the the need to counsel others about sin. David is instructing us in the blessing of being forgiven, of the warning and of really the sorrow of hiding our sin and not confessing and then the freedom of being forgiven. And then he says even, let me instruct you further on how to deal with sin, how to think about it and how to deal with it. And not only is he instructing us, but I think he's also giving an example of how can we instruct other people? How can we counsel other people in their sin and through their struggles of life and through their difficulties and through their own sin? How can we do that? And he does that in three ways under this last point. He talks about in verse 6 and 7, he says, to confess your sin quickly to prevent discipline of the Lord. Part of his counsel in verse 6 and 7 is confess quickly in order to prevent God's discipline. And therefore, he says, verse 6, Let every holy one of you pray when a time when, when ye may be found in the Lord. Surely in a flood of great waters they will, reach, they will not reach him, and you are my hiding place, and you guard me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Again, the, the idea of the holy ones, meaning those who are saved, those who are the children and the people of God. Pray to the Lord. Pray Asking the Lord to forgive you. That's, that's just, again, the idea of just confession and the idea of the day you may be found, do it quickly. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't presume upon God's grace that, well, I'll just sin and I'll, I'll ask for forgiveness later. No big deal. David's saying, don't do that. The author of Hebrews tells us that we need to go to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in a time of need. We go to him. We go to the Lord in prayer, confessing our sin, acknowledging our sin before him. Again, it's really uh, the idea of a, of a warning. Later on, he talks about surely a flood of great waters. That's the idea of the Lord's discipline. David's referring there to the discipline of the Lord. And as we confess, that discipline won't reach us. That discipline won't be needed from the Lord to come to us. And verse 7 sort of continues that idea. Again, you're my hiding place from what? God is our hiding place from, from God. He's our hiding place. He's a refuge from the discipline of the Lord. That's what David is saying. God, or David found refuge in the Lord and deliverance from, from the discipline of the Lord. He found it only in Christ. He didn't find it in anything else. He didn't find it in recreation or in entertainment or in anything else. In times of trouble and hardship and, and harboring our sin and not addressing it, the only way that David and the only way that we can find joy and lasting peace and deliverance is through the confession of that sin. And David says, look, and then you also, you, it's, we praise him for this deliverance. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Because we've been delivered, because we've been saved, because we've been forgiven, we praise the Lord. This is why we sing on Sunday. Not just on Sundays, but other times we can sing. We praise him for his kindness, for, for his deliverance from our sin. 
And then he says, Selah, again, pause there. Dwell on the mercy of the Lord. Dwell upon the forgiveness of God. Dwell upon that when you come to him, he may be found. That when you cry out to him, he's there. He's our hiding place. He guards us from our sin. He guards us and protects us from the consequences of our own sin. Praise him for that, David says, verse 7. Well, second counsel he gives us, verse 8 and 9, he says, listen, to, listen and don't harden your hearts. Listen to God, listen to other people, and don't harden your hearts. I will give you insight and teach you the way in which you should go and counsel you with my eye upon you. And don't be as the horse or the mule. It's, uh, it's such a great illustration. Which have no understanding, David says. Some commentators uh, are going to disagree. and They'll say verse 8, it's, it's God speaking um, to us. And other commentators say it's David speaking. And David's the one saying, I will counsel you in these ways and I'll, I'll instruct you. And really, I think you could, you could go both ways because how the Lord often instructs us, how the Lord often counsels us, how the Lord often confronts us is through other people, isn't it? Especially if you're married and have kids. As kids get older and as they learn how to talk, then they learn how to tell you, Daddy, you're sinning. The Lord's gracious there. Hebrews 3.13, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God uses other people to counsel us and to instruct us that we're sinning. To tell us the way we should go. When someone comes to you and to point out your sin, don't push them away again. Don't ignore that. Oh, you don't know me. Who are you speaking to my life? Don't have that attitude. Listen to what they say. Take it to heart. Because if you do ignore them, you do stiff arm their rebuke, you do just reject their correction. David says you're showing yourself to be a horse and a mule. And if you're wondering, that's not a compliment. Horses and mules are not something that you're like, yeah, I'm a mule. Okay, that's not something you want to be known as. He says they have no understanding. They have a bit and a bridle to control them. Otherwise, they don't come near to you. They need to be trained and tamed. They're wild beasts. They're stubborn. They're obstinate animals. They're creatures that have to be controlled by these goofy things in their mouths and on their heads to tell them where to go. God is saying if you ignore correction from other people, you, if you ignore the correction that God's bringing to you through his word, you're like an animal without sense. You're an animal without any control. And you will eventually face the discipline of the Lord and he will correct you. Just as a horse or a mule gets corrected by the rider through using the bit and the bridle in his mouth to get its attention and to correct it, to get it to go the way, the way in which he wants it to go, the Lord will use his loving discipline to get your attention as well, to tell you, go this way. Do what I'm telling you to do. Just like the horse David rushed into sin without thinking, without understanding. And like the mule, he was stubborn and unwilling to repent of his sin for a long time. David's saying, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Again, when you're confronted by other people, what is your reaction and what is your thought? Are you willing to be told you're sinning? Are you willing to be told you're wrong? You're on a dangerous path. 
It don't have an attitude of, who are you to tell me? God says we're to tell you. Soften your hearts. Don't be like David. Or worse, those who never repent. Those who always are rejecting and hardening their heart to the truth and to the Lord. Don't be like that. The third counsel David, David gives us as we got to wrap up here. The third counsel David gives us is in verse 10 and 11. He's, he can praise the Lord for his gracious forgiveness. And don't harden your heart. Verse 8 and 9, don't reject the Lord. <clears throat> don't reject the counsel of other people, but praise him for his gracious forgiveness. Can many of the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness, shall surround him and be glad in Yahweh and rejoice. You righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Can those who choose not to repent, those who choose not to confess their sin. David says there's a sorrow upon sorrow. And he, he expressed that in verse 3 and 4. We, we understand what he's talking about there. The, the joy in life is gone. Sadness is there. And just sorrow upon sorrow. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be life, a life of constant sorrow like that where you feel this the constant weight and the pressing down of the Lord's hand upon you like you're in a press. David says you don't, it doesn't have to be that way because just as sorrow surrounds the wicked, sorrow surrounds those who are refusing to repent, it says that loving kindness surrounds those who confessed their sin, who've been forgiven by God. The, the love of God, he says, is unfailing. It's his, it's his covenant-keeping love, David says here. The loving kindness is covenant-keeping love to those whom he has saved, those whom he has forgiven. Part of that commitment of God's love is that he will never stop loving you. No matter how much you sin against him, he won't just shut you out and ignore you. No matter how much we fail to praise him and and, and come to him and maybe we're slow in our confession at times, it doesn't mean that God's just going to say, get out of my sight. I don't want nothing to do with you. I'm not going to forgive you anymore. His covenant-keeping love says that he will, he will forgive us no matter what our sin is. Again, this, doesn't, this is not an excuse. I'll sin however I want, then I'll just confess. I'll sin and do whatever I want and then just say, Jesus, I'm sorry, forgive me. That's not true confession. That's not true repentance. A heart of true confession, a heart of true repentance is, Lord, I hate this. I don't want to do this anymore. Help me to follow you and to obey you. Help me to walk in your love and to trust in you rather than in my own sin. But the reminder that sometimes we need is you can't out-sin God's love, though. There's no other way, no other means by which God has chosen to deal with us other than through his love, through his forgiveness. And we go to him in times of prayer, confession, repentance because of that unfailing love. And then as a result, we worship him. We are glad in him. We rejoice in him. We shout for joy in him. Even in times when we're in, in times of trial, in times of hardship, and uh, we can still rejoice. We can still have joy in our hearts, in our lives. Especially knowing that our sin is forgiven. That we're going to go to heaven, that we're not destined to hell for all of eternity. What a joy, what a praise. Why wouldn't we be glad in the Lord? David ends the psalm like he began, just you're blessed, rejoice, praise the Lord. You've been forgiven and cleansed. 
Sing to him. Praise him. Be glad in him. Don't walk around like a spiritual Eeyore. Be, be thankful. Where might you be this morning? Are you, are you hiding in some secret sin? Are you harboring sin in your heart? Are you unwilling to repent, unwilling to let go, unwilling to be corrected, unwilling to confess something? Are you comparing your sin to other people? I'm not as bad as Hitler, or I'm not as bad as my neighbor, or my spouse, or my kids, or whoever. I'm not as bad as that person. My sin isn't really that big of a deal. Again, let us never think this isn't that big of a deal because any sin for which Christ had to die is not insignificant. Any sin is not insignificant because Christ had to die for it. Every sin, no matter large or small, or however large or small we may view it, is a rebellion against God. With deep sincerity and godly sorrow, and we go to him acknowledging our sin, never presuming upon, again, God's unmerited grace, but humbly coming before him, seeking his forgiveness. Maybe you're in a season of life where, the, again, just joy is gone, vitality is gone, you just feel dis- discouraged and depressed. Often you feel guilty but don't know what to do. The spiritual smoke alarm, so to speak, is going off constantly in your heart and in your mind. Might there be unconfessed sin in your life that you just aren't willing to deal with? Has someone come to you in love and confronted you and you just said, no, I don't want to deal with that and you've responded more like a mule than a Christian? Okay, don't downplay your sin. Don't call sickness what God calls sin. Don't call an accident what God calls an abomination. Take it seriously. No matter what the sin is, we go to him. God says he'll cover it. He'll forgive it as we go to him in confession, repentance. He wipes that debt of sin clean. And then we can rejoice and be glad in him for that and praise him for his great love and mercy which he displayed on the cross, which is what we celebrate here with communion. About once a month or so, we, as a church, we celebrate the Lord's table or communion as as a way of reminder of that, the work on the cross that Jesus did for us to secure our forgiveness, to secure our salvation. We celebrate that as a way of reminder, not as a way of, if I eat this cracker and drink this juice, I'm saved because it's a cracker and juice and you, that can't save you. We're saved by the work of Christ. We're saved through the means of God's grace, of Jesus' kindness to, to fulfill the law in himself, to perfectly obey the law of God in himself, and then to die in our place, to substitute himself in our place on the cross. And then we place our faith and trust in him, and then that's where salvation is found by faith, not by works. And so we do uh, this, uh, this remembrance of communion as a way of reminder that Christ even said 
He instituted this and said, as, you, uh, as often as you are eating and drinking of this, do this in remembrance of me. Again, there's no magic in these elements. They are symbols. They are reminders of the body which, is, which was broken for you. The bread represents Christ's body which was broken and bloodied and beaten for you. And the cup represents his blood that was shed on your behalf. His life that was given in your place. If you're not saved this morning and you're wondering what this is, it's okay. Just don't partake. You don't need to come up and take this in a minute, but you can repent. You can place your faith and trust in the Lord now and you can ask him to forgive you. You can confess your sins to a holy God and ask him to cleanse you of your sin and to cover your sin. And if, if, you were, if you're like David before he repented and confessed and you are claiming to be a believer, but yet you're unwilling to let go of sin, you're harboring sin, you're unwilling to confess, to come before the Lord in prayer and repentance, then we would just say, we would ask, don't come and partake of this lightly. Don't care about whoever around you is watching you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just before your heart and the Lord, though, repent. Be willing to confess your sin before him. And then come and take the elements and celebrate with us being reminded of the depths of the gospel and your need to be reconciled to him. And just a minute, the musicians will come up and spend a few minutes praying, confessing your, Lord, uh, your sins to the Lord. And when you're ready, come up and take the, a cup and um, a cracker. Go back to your seat. And when we've all done that, then we'll all lead us together and we'll partake in communion together. So just spend a few minutes just praying to the Lord, confessing any sin. And maybe you think, I, I, I need to address somebody. I need to confess my sin to somebody else. And I need to be reconciled to somebody else. Pray in your heart. Thank the Lord for reconciliation for the gospel. And then after the service, deal with that quickly. Go to somebody, confess your sin to them, reconcile with them quickly. Let's just spend some time praying to the Lord.